about a week or so ago, a little over a week ago, I was in my firm's offices in New York, in Midtown Manhattan, and talking to one of my colleagues. And this colleague and I are one who have had spiritually focused conversations before, though we come from very different perspectives. And I was telling him about some of the uh, near death or challenging physically uh, experiences that I've had. I told him uh, in particular about my brain tumor. And 25 years old, I was diagnosed with a golf ball sized brain tumor on my cerebellum and uh, was told initially that it appeared to be cancerous. And for a weekend, I was forced to grapple with the fact that as a 25 year old, uh, I might have brain cancer. And of course, m many of you know the story. It turned out not to be cancerous. Uh, the tumor was removed, and uh, I have had very, very few side effects uh, since that day, though I am missing a vertebrae on the, my very topmost vertebrae. D please don't come elbow me directly on the, on the back of my head here. I'd probably fall to the ground. Um, why did I just tell you that? You now know how to disable me. That was very unwise. Ted, can we remove that from the church recording? Let's make sure no one gets that secret. And so as I was telling um, my colleague and, and friend about this, I, I just shared with him, I thought it was actually very helpful. Because as I shared, I said, it's very helpful for us to know our own mortality, that we are going to die, that we are going to come to that position. And he made a comment. I can't quote it. I can only paraphrase it. He said, because that's for you. Life after death is some glorious experience up, you know, going through the pearly gates. He said, for me, it's just a void. Black, dark, empty. This kind of poetic way that he put it. It was very striking, wasn't it? He, he, he put his finger right on it. We don't need to fear death. In fact, coming to grips with our own death is something very healthy for the Christian because we realize we won't live forever in, in, in this world. And so therefore we should act like it, we should live like it, but to the one who has no hope of living beyond death, to whom the life after is nothing more than blackness, void, darkness, the absence of being. Why would we want to grapple with death? It doesn't sound like very much fun. You know, we, we all are confronted today, whatever profession you're in, wherever you are, we are confronted by that same thing. We were out visiting, Tabitha and I were yesterday, and we had just stopped by Ladidra's house and uh, stopped by to see Willie across the street, one of our other regular bus riders, and we stopped by uh, Willie's neighbor's house. And we invited them. They were out working on some yard work, and Tabitha struck up a conversation, invited her to church, and it was her, her, her response was so interesting. She says, no. And then she said, on... Un, um, unprovoked, she said, we don't believe in the afterlife. We don't believe in an afterlife. I thought, what an interesting way to put it. I don't want to go to church. Why? Because, because I don't believe in an afterlife. And that kind of view is, is all around us. If you were to go out in the street today and say, do you believe in life after death? Surveys show that about three quarters of Americans would say, yes, I, I do believe in life after death. Another probably quarter would say, I don't believe in life after death, like my colleague and like Ladidra's neighbor. We don't believe in that. 
But even those who believe in life after death couldn't tell you exactly a standard answer of what it looks like. If you were to ask people what, it, what heaven looks like, some of you was, wasn't that where we're up there like angels with wings on our backs and floating around on clouds? And There's all these mixed up views of what resurrection life actually looks like. And this was no different in Jesus' day. Last week, if you were here, we jumped into this passage where the Sadducees come to Jesus and they ask him this convoluted, this complicated hypothetical. A same woman marries seven different men and each one dies. One dies, she marries a second and he dies and you marry a third and then a fourth and then a fifth and a sixth and a seventh and they don't have any kids. And so Jesus, the Sadducees say, when this woman gets up to the resurrection when she is raised, who's she going to be married to? Are you saying she's going to be married to seven guys and be an adulteress? Are they going to be fighting over her Jesus? See, they thought they had Jesus stumped. Why? Because these Sadducees, they were sad, you see. Tabitha made fun of me for that dad joke that I told last week, but I feel like I am a dad. So that's okay. I can tell dad jokes, right? The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in it. So they were just trying to stump Jesus. They were, they were just trying to trick him. We've got a good one, Jesus. You can't answer this question. Well, we learned last week, Jesus' explanation, that in heaven, they, are, they do not marry, they are not given in marriage. And we learned that reality that can be difficult for us to process for those who love their spouses and can't imagine life without them, they see, wait, I'm not going to be married to this person for eternity? And we understood the idea that there will be only one marriage in heaven. That marriage between Jesus and his church will be so perfect, so complete, so satisfying that there will be no need for a physical marriage to be a picture of it. It will be perfect. It will be utterly ideal. And yes, I believe that you will know your spouse in heaven. I believe you will know your family members in that new heaven and earth. I'm sure there will be bonds that we cannot fully understand. But there will be no need for a physical picture of what is intended to be the eternal marriage of God and his people. And so we understood that last week, but we saved for this week Jesus' theological explanation of the resurrection from the dead. Notice what Jesus says. Will you hear, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them with us to Mark chapter 12. If you have them on a phone or tablet or something else, take a look with us. Jesus says in verse 26, And as touching the dead or as concerning the dead, that they rise. The Sadducees didn't believe in any of that. Jesus says, Have ye not read in the book of Moses, how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. On this Memorial Day weekend, I think it's very fitting for us to speak on the subject, the God of the living. The God of the living. The title of our message this morning is Christ on Trial, the God of the living. 
And we're going to break it up, as we often do, into three parts. We're going to start, first of all, by talking about the argument that was going on between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and that Jesus was brought into. Secondly, we're going to look at the authority that Jesus brings to bear on this important subject. Do the dead rise again or not? And third, we're going to draw some Memorial Day applications for all of us on this important holiday weekend. First of all, the argument. Now, what's going on here? Again, remember, the rulers, the elite religious people of Jesus' day in Jerusalem are coming to Jesus who has identified himself as the king of God's kingdom. He is ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy that your king will come to you riding on a donkey. He has entered in, and the people have been quoting messianic passages to him. Hosanna, save now, save now. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. They were beginning to identify him as God's chosen king. And then he goes into the temple and takes on a role as if he is a high priest, cleaning out the temple of impurity, identifying himself as the one who would come into his temple, even the messenger of the covenant from Malachi chapter 3. And that's what triggers the question from these Pharisees, from these high priests, from these others. They say to him, the priests and scribes and others say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to waltz into God's temple and start doing these kinds of tasks? And Jesus says, well, let me ask you a question. We looked at that several weeks ago. And now different ones of them are lining up like planes on a runway, ready to come and ask him tough question after tough question to trip him up. They're not being sincere. They're being hypocrites. They're not, at, they're not honestly wanting an answer. They're wanting to destroy him. So now the Sadducees come, and we see here in verse 18, then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And last week we understood that the Sadducees not only didn't believe in a resurrection, they believed there was no life after death. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe there was any such thing as angels. And they didn't believe there was any such thing as spirits. In other words, they wouldn't have said that your soul existed beyond death. In fact, we know this from the historian Josephus. Josephus, um, you, can, you could find a quote from Josephus saying they don't believe that any a soul exists after death. When your body dies, your soul dies, and you have no further existence. They would have agreed with my colleague. Once you die, blackness, darkness, void, the absence of being. Well, you see, the Pharisees believed something very different. The Pharisees opposed Jesus as well. But the Pharisees were the religious leaders of that day. And they very much believed in resurrection. You know why? Because the Old Testament teaches it all over the place. It teaches. Listen to Job chapter 19. And I'll just give you the references, and you don't have to turn there, but maybe you can go and look at them and think about them a little bit yourself. Job 19, verse 23 through 27 this very, very, this man who went through great tribulation, Job, said, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. Little did he know. Little did he know. 
He said, for I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, what's he saying? Worms are going to eat my body one day. Though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. He's saying, though worms destroy my body one day, yet I'm going to see him again. I am going to see him, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Notice, this is a clear teaching in our view of resurrection. It was in the Psalms, the poetry of the Old Testament. Listen to what David says in Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou, speaking to God, for you will not leave my soul in hell. Now he doesn't mean hell like we think of it as a lake of fire. That's not what the word signifies in, in Hebrew. It's the word that we would say Hades. The idea to the Hebrew of the place where the dead were. You will not leave my soul in that void. You will not leave my soul with the dead. Listen to what he says. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. He said, you won't leave my soul with the dead. The path to life will be in your presence with fullness of joy. The early church quoted this as looking ahead to Jesus. That he, his soul would not be left in hell. That he would not see corruption. But that God would show Jesus the path of life. Perhaps even more clearer than these are in the prophets. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Listen to these words. Daniel 12, verses 1 through 3 says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time, looking ahead to a future time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Now listen to this in verse 2. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. They sleep in the dust of the earth. They are dead. They will awake. Some to everlasting life. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see what he's saying? There will be a resurrection of those who will live forever with God. And a resurrection of those who will be judged eternally. Apart from God's goodness and grace. And they that be wise, Daniel says, shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. You see, the Pharisees would have looked at these passages and others and said to the Sadducees, don't you see, there is a resurrection from the dead. The Old Testament teaches it. You say, well, what was the Sadducees' problem then? Here was their problem. They didn't accept the rest of the Old Testament other than the Torah the first five books of the law. They wouldn't have accepted the authority of the Psalms, of Daniel, of Job. They said, is it in the first five books? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Is it in the Torah? It's not? 
well, then we're not going to follow it. It's a very interesting view, but that was their idea. And to them, this was, the resurrection was not taught in the first five books of the Bible. Show us where it is in the Torah, and we'll agree with you that there's a resurrection. And you can imagine how much the Pharisees must have tried to do that. Meet them on their own terms. Here's where it is. And they just never could get anywhere with them. They said, no, we don't believe in resurrection. We, we don't see angels in the first five books. We don't see spirits in the first five books of the Bible. We don't believe it. That was them. So now they come up to Jesus, and they have this trick question that they think will stump him. Well, if there is such a thing as a resurrection, what about this woman who's got seven different husbands that she was married to at different times? Who's she going to be married to? And again, last week we looked at Jesus' response. And now they give Jesus a chance to give his view. And now look with me at verse number 26, will you? That's the argument that they are inviting Jesus into between Pharisees and Sadducees. Secondly here, there's authority. Jesus is going to speak. Look at what he says in verse 26. And is touching the dead, concerning the dead, that they rise. There's no question in Jesus' mind. They do rise from the dead. Have ye not read in the book of Moses... Why did Jesus look back to the book of Moses? Why did he look back to the Pentateuch? Why did he look back to the first five books? Because that's what the only thing the Sadducees accepted. He says, you, you want me to prove it on your terms? Haven't you read in the book of Moses? By the way, who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses did. And there will be many today who will try to dispute the authorship of Moses over the first five books of the Bible. Take it up with Jesus. He called it the book of Moses. Now notice he didn't say, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. You'll find that on page 1200 of your pew Bible. Well, of course, because do you know that actually they didn't have chapter and verse divisions in the Bible until probably the 1500s or so. They, didn't, they had big scrolls. Jesus wouldn't have pointed out that scroll. Here, turn in your scroll here. They just talked like that. Yeah, that passage about the bush, about the burning bush, I'm talking about that one. And every one of them said, oh yeah, okay, I got that one. The book of Moses about the bush. Okay, I got it. And notice what Jesus says. Have ye not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of of Jacob. Now you say, what's going on here? You can go look. We won't do this for time's sake, but Exodus 3, verses 1 through 6, you can read this passage for context. God is calling his servant Moses to go down into Egypt and bring his people out of slavery. They are slaves, suffering in the land of Egypt. They're God's chosen people in bondage. And God is choosing Moses to go down and be their deliverer. And so he appears to him in a bush that is burning. It's on fire. And Moses stops and he looks at this bush and he says, it's burning, but it's not being consumed. It's just burning, but it's not burning up. He says, you know, let me stop and look at this. You probably would have done that too. Let me stop and see what's going on here. And out of that bush, God speaks to him. And here's what he says. God called unto him, Exodus 3 says, out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he said, draw not nigh hither. Don't come any closer. 
Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. It's holy ground. I'm here. Moreover, he said, verse 6, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now let me pause here for just a minute. When I read that passage for you just now, did it immediately jump into your heads to say, oh, that's teaching about the resurrection of the dead. Oh, yeah, of course. God is teaching that the, resur the dead will be resurrected, including Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Would any of you have read that and said, oh, that's exactly what he means by that? I, if, if you did, good for you. Because that's not what I got out of it, okay? I, I honestly had to kind of struggle with this a little bit. I had to look at some sources, and there are different ideas from different pastors and commentators on what exactly this means. But let me tell you what I think he's saying. You've got this text, and Jesus says this text proves that the dead are raised. They will be raised. There's going to be a resurrection. There's life after death, which the Sadducees rejected. Notice what he says. The text Jesus points to is, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. How does that prove the resurrection? Well, start first with the tense. You say, what's the tense? You know what a verb tense is? What's the present tense? I am. What's the past tense? I was. What's the future tense? I will be. Right? What tense did God use when he was speaking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Did he say, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? What did he say? I am. Huh. By Exodus 3, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for hundreds upon hundreds of years. God is speaking in the present tense to Moses as a being, as a living God. And he speaks of men who have been dead for hundreds of years. And he says, I am their God. Not I was their God. But do you know I think it's even more than that? Listen to this. He said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You say, what does that mean? Well, think about the Sadducees. The Sadducees believed that when you died, your soul died with it. You were dead. There was void. There was emptiness. You ceased to exist. Let me ask you this, friends. Do, do beings that cease to exist forever need a God? Do they need a God? Do they need a God who will comfort them? A God who will protect them? A God who will provide for them? A God who will be the covenant God that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob? I will be your God. I will provide for you. I will care for you. I have promised to you. I have committed to you. Do dead things that cease to exist need a God like that? They don't. They're gone. Let me explain it to you this way. 
I'm a pastor. That's a very sobering responsibility. Hebrews tells us that we watch for people's souls, your souls, as those that must give account. Do you know one day that tells me I and my, the leaders here at Straight Gate Church will need to stand before God and give an account for how we watch for your soul? That's pretty serious. It's pretty sobering. We're going to have to give an account one day. There's something about the life of a pastor to watch over the people who have come under his care. Do you know, friends, when I stand at a graveside and I take the dust and I pour it over the casket and I say, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, do you know there's nothing more for me to do with that person in front of me? They don't need a pastor anymore. I don't watch for their soul. I will give account for how I did watch their soul. I was their pastor. But I would not say of that person, I am their pastor. They don't need me to be their pastor anymore. And in the same way, God speaks of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he says, I am their God. I'm still in a relationship with them. They still exist. I am still a covenant-keeping God to them. I am still a protector. I am still a provider. I am still the source of being for them. They are dead, and yet they are not gone. They live. And that's why Jesus says he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. What was he saying? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob live. They are still alive hundreds of years after their bodies went into the ground. They live. Now let that sink in for just one moment. Luke chapter 20, when this same uh, story is given from Luke's perspective, he adds these words. This is what Jesus added. He said, for he is not a God of the dead, but of the living. For all live unto him. For all live unto him. What do you mean? To him, all are alive. To him, everyone is living. You say their body is in the ground. They are dead. To him, they live. He remains the covenant God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob after they are gone. Now maybe you stop there for a minute and say, okay, I get that. I understand. He's not a God of dead people. He's God of living people, so we must live on after death. I get that much. But you said, wait a second, Pastor Peter. Jesus said this proves that the dead are raised again. You just convinced me that our, our spirits live on. They continue to exist and relate to God. But how does this prove that my body will rise again? And that's a really good question if you thought of that. How does that prove that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will be resurrected one day? And the only thing I, I can think is there's an implication here that Jesus is wanting us to think of. In Genesis chapter 2, God makes clear that you as a person are more than a body. But you're also more than a spirit. Do you know why? In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, 
Moses says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. What did he make? He made a body. You here sitting here before us today have a body. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. What are you? You're a body. You're a spirit. God breathed into humanity the breath of life. And one day, friends, just like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, your body will die. Your body is, my body is dying right now as we speak. We are in the process of dying. And yet your spirit, what God breathed into you to make you a living soul, will live. You say, how does that prove a resurrection from the dead? Because one day God will not allow you to remain a bodiless spirit. Jesus is teaching us that our spirit and our body will be reconnected. That's what the resurrection is all about. Of your body, soul, and spirit once again coming together in a marriage of eternal life. And God is the one who is the author of all of it. Jesus is teaching us this is what God was implying. This is what he was stating, that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they live, their existence continues. And because their existence continues, even when their body is down in the ground, God will bring those two back together and they will live eternally. As best I understand it, that's the argument that Jesus was making to them. And you know what we read from other accounts? They knew that was a really good one. Whoa. Okay. That was a good point. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that's where, thirdly, I want to turn to all of us here on this Memorial Day weekend. And I want to give us a few applications for ourselves. I don't know whether any of you are like Sadducees here today. You, you would say this morning, I don't know whether there's any life after death. I don't know whether there's just void and blackness and darkness or, or whether there's a hope of eternity. The message from Jesus to you today is on the authority of Jesus Christ, the dead will rise. He said it over and over and the Bible clearly teaches it. But there's an application to those of us for whom Memorial Day is very poignant. I remember this weekend growing up, my father, a man of habit, a creature of habit, if you knew him, every Memorial Day Sunday, he would go to the, to the cemetery that was right off Rose Lawn in St. Paul. I can see it now, that corner in my mind's eye. And he would put flowers down at his mother's uh, burial site and his father's burial site there together. It was something that we always did going into church uh, on Sunday evening. And many of you have your own habits, your own memorials of going to remember and to, to, to grieve perhaps those who have died, particularly those who have died recently. And I want to say to you, just in the same way that God said, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Jacob, I am the God of Isaac. What he is saying to you is that those of you, your loved ones who were in Christ, he is their God today too. 
they live. Oh, their bodies are dead, but they live. Think of the dear ones that we have lost at this church over the last decade or more. Roger Magnuson lives. Xavier Delaney lives. Ron Erickson lives. Ken Stover lives. Sheila Armstrong lives. Gwen Davis lives. Kathy Jacobs lives. We could go down the line over and over because God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And what you remember of your loved ones who are in Christ, what made them, them, their spirits, they did not die. They live. And what's glorious about it is that the same God who in Jesus Christ made an eternal covenant with those who are gone from us, whose bodies are, are let lie in the grave today, the same covenant God is in relationship with them right now. He is their God. And he will be forever. Listen to what F.B. Meyer, the great British pastor of the late 19th century and early 20th century said, he said, death is not a state or condition, but an act. Think about that for just a minute. Death is not a state or condition, but an act. He said, we speak of the dead, but in point of fact, there are none such. There are none dead. We should speak of those who have died. They are not dead. They merely have died. They were living up to the moment of death, but they were living quite as much afterwards. Death is like birth, an act, a transition, a passage into a freer life. Never, never think of a death as a state, but as resembling a bridge, which for a moment casts its shadow on the express train, which flashes beneath but does not stay. All our dear ones are living as vividly, as keenly, as intensely as ever, with all the love and faith and intelligence with which we were wont to associate their beloved personality. It may be that they think of us as only half alive compared with their own intense and vivid experience of the life which draws its breath from the manifested presence of God. What a thought. They live because he is the God of the living. He is not the God of the dead. Paul tells us this clearly. He says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Your loved ones in Christ are present with the Lord. They live. What a memorial they thought. God is the God of the living. But what about you? There's not just an application for your loved ones, an implication for them. There's an implication for all of us on this Memorial Day weekend. And the clear implication that I see in is, it is this. You will live. You will live. Friend, you could look at your body today. You could look in the mirror. And every day that passes, your face is getting a little more etched with the cares of life, 
the wrinkles of the skin. For some of us, the hair is getting a little grayer or a little thinner. For some of us, our bodies are getting weaker. We are losing muscle every day. We're losing bone density. We're waking up with more aches and pains today than we were yesterday and the day before. I say that to note all of us. We are dying. Our bodies are preparing to die. From the moment we are born, that process of death is occurring. But the point is this. Your body will die if the Lord tarries. But you will not. Listen to what Jesus said to a grieving woman. A woman who was missing her brother who had just died. In John 11, Jesus says to her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She said, I know that he will. And listen to what Jesus said. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. You know what he's saying? Your body will live again. Your body dies, but your body will live again because I am the resurrection and the life. But then listen to this very interesting word. He said, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. You see, I thought he said those who were dead shall live, and now he said you'll never die because he was talking about your body. Your body is dead, but it, it will live. But friends, if you're in Jesus... There's a part of you that will never die. Because he that believes on the Son has life. Everlasting life. And he that believes not the Son has not life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Friend, you will live. You will live forever one day. The only question is whether you will be united in eternal life with Jesus Christ or whether you will be eternally separated from him in what is called an eternal death in the lake of fire. All men live unto God. Everyone will be resurrected one day. It will depend on whether we have received the eternal life that is in Jesus alone. See, what implication does this have for us? As I was reflecting on this, I was reminded of one of my favorite pieces of music that was ever written. Perhaps one of the most thrilling performances musically that I've, I've ever been privileged to be a part of. It's written by a man named Gustav Mahler, M-A-H-L-E-R. It is called his Resurrection Symphony. It's his second symphony in C minor. And I would just encourage you, any one of you who are interested, go listen to the last movement of Mahler's Resurrection Symphony. Maybe on Memorial Day weekend, you sit out on your back porch and you pour a glass of lemonade and you sit and listen to it. It is one of the most thrilling moments in all of Western music. Mahler himself wrote of it, the increasing tension working up to the final climax is so tremendous that I don't know myself, now that it is over, how I ever came to write it. I had the opportunity to sing this portion of the end of the Resurrection Symphony. It was on Easter Sunday. I was part of the Duke Chapel Choir. And in this Resurrection Sun, um, uh, uh, Symphony, Mahler gives his own theory, his own theology of resurrection. 
I don't know whether Mahler knew Jesus Christ and whether he got to experience it, but he pronounced in German triumphantly, Auferstehen, ja, Auferstehen, rise again, yes, rise again. He believed that he would rise again one day. But you know, in light of this resurrection, Mahler's second symphony gives these words in German, Bereite dich zu leben. Bereite dich zu leben. And I knew a little German at the time. And those words struck me when I first came across them, and they've struck me since that point. Do you know what those words, bereite dich zu leben, mean? Prepare to live. Prepare to live. I thought, wow. If the resurrection is true, prepare to live. You say, why does that matter? Because, friends, all over the world today, people are preparing to die. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean they see their death coming, and they are trying to take the orange of life and squeeze as much juice out of it as they can. Let me get as much life out of this orange as I can before I die. I'm going to die, so let us eat, drink, and be merry, because we're going to try to get all of life out of it as we can. They are preparing to die. Do you know what the Christian is doing? The Christian is preparing to live. Oh, they are preparing to die. They're preparing for this body to die. They know we are going to die. But you're preparing to live forever because you know that your works are going to follow you. You know that what you do for Christ in this life will live on. You know that every act of faith that you do for him, as Jesus says, if you even give a cup of cold water to someone in my name, you won't lose your reward. You're preparing to live. In 1 Corinthians 15, after Paul has taught in the most exquisite detail about the resurrection from the dead, how does he conclude it to living people? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Always abound in the work of the Lord. Because yes, your body may die, but because he is the God of the living, you will live. On this Memorial Day weekend, friend, don't remember the dead. Remember those who have died and continue to live. And then as you reflect on the same idea, with Mahler, I say to you, bereite dich zu leben. Prepare to live.